Well, this is one of the quietest first days of a retreat I can remember. I'm not sure what's going on inside of you, but externally it appears to be pretty tame. <laughs> so I've decided to arouse things. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> first of all, I want to just mention that if you don't feel challenged on a retreat, something's wrong. It's not a, a time, from my point of view, uh, to be too sedated. I mean, there are certainly times when that's appropriate. But I think one of the responsibilities of a teacher is to have hold, us, hold the Dharma out so that you can stretch. <clears throat> and uh, stretching is not often comfortable. In fact, it, it rarely is comfortable because we're stretching out of our conditioned perspective into a different orientation to something. And that requires a realignment to the concepts, direction of, of, in which we have been headed. And I have found that uh, the more I stretch, the more I appreciate uh, not being fixed within a particular perspective. <clears throat> and uh, I hope that your Dharma practice is really filled with that self-challenge on an ongoing basis. Tonight, uh, just to um, bring forth a little challenging spirit, I want to talk about to be or not to be, and specifically in relationship to death, a topic that um, should have some degree of stretch for us, (laughs) and it's an interesting topic because it's one that I've lived with for years and feel very comfortable with in some perspective but always feel stretched when I really look at it in another. Uh, And I'm going to talk about it not only from the physical component because when I read some of your questionnaires, many of you have had, as I mentioned last night, um, a turbulent year, a year of loss, of grief, of self, um, of illness and ongoing. And I just believe it's going to get worse. You know, it's not going to... <laughs> this is the tip of the iceberg. I don't know how many of you saw uh, that Ram Dass film, um, Still Here, I think it was called. Or, I can't remember what it was called, but it was after he had his uh, stroke. And there was a... A, um, a part of that film in which he, this was maybe, could have been almost 10 years ago. There's a part of that film where he says, um, uh, baby boomers aren't ready for aging. They aren't prepared. And uh, it struck me, because here I was, you know, probably at that time in the midst of my hospice work, philosophically exposing myself to you know, old age, sickness, and death. But um, when it starts happening, it's a different. It, it, it's different. <laughs> it's like a, <laughs> you know, knowing something and, and realizing something. Right? We all know that we're going to have old age, sickness, and death. But then, 
when it actually confronts us and we realize that that's what's happening, it's like, well, I didn't want, I didn't want this. I wanted it modulated. I wanted it tempered. You know, I wanted it in my, on my terms. And uh, the Dharma doesn't uh, do it that way for the most part. It plays hardball. It plays hardball. It plays, it's given us plenty of time to realize the fact. And then if we still are stubborn in our adaptation and realization of the fact, it starts playing hardball. Uh, so that we all have to go through it. Every single one of us. Right on down the line. Now, how are we preparing for that on this retreat? How are we looking at this? And I just want to um, encourage these systems that we have in place, these rituals, you might say, such as listening to the bell, You know, if we really orient ourselves to what that is attempting to do, we stop. We have surrendered our story, our uh, continuance, our continuance, which is death. We have surrendered our continuance and am now rising to a whole different dimension in which where I need to go is not our priority. We surrendered that. Surrender is not a resignation. It's not, damn, the bell caught me before I could get to the bathroom. But I might as well stand here or somebody will see me move. That's resignation. It's not anger, which you feel all the sense of betrayal of being caught in your continuance, you see, which is also the way that we accommodate death is from these anger, etc. stages. Or it's not anger, you know, it's like the bell rings and we get upset and irritated that we have to stop. You see those, you can feel those stages perhaps every time the bell rings, but the bell's purpose is to call us out of ourselves, to rise up, to stretch above where it is and what it is that we thought we needed to do, what was so important for our life, where I needed to be. It's a small thing, but believe me, it prepares us. It starts allowing us to stretch towards a Dharma orientation rather than towards a self-orientation. And mostly we're in this stream of consciousness which I call the trance of self. And all day long, we even sit within it. It's like we're entombed within it. Everything is created around it and fastened somehow as part of the story. It's like we're continually at the typewriter talking about now our meditation in terms of, the, in terms of our continuance. I had a good meditation and even had a moment in which I wasn't there. And then I, we build in the selfless gaps within the narrative as well. Everything is completely domed in within that dimension. And awakening is awakening out of that dimension. 
And that's just, the dimension is a concept deep. It's, it's not about the length of time I've worked on that dimension. If you work within that dimension, using the strategies and orientation and perspectives of that dimension, 30 years from now, 30 lifetimes from now, 30,000 lifetimes from now, we will still be within the dimension because it doesn't provide an avenue out of itself. It just keeps moving around in the dome of continuance. What does it take to rise up out of that dimension? It takes our courage because the only hole out, there's only one portal, and that's death. Sometimes framed as surrender, sometimes framed as letting be. I think that those are euphemisms. You know, letting be sounds so much more, I can just kind of let this be, but we don't really end our relationship to it. Death is an ending. It's a parting. It's a rising so that that is no longer, um, it no longer has any bearing. It's a reframing, you might say, although it's not a reframing back into thought. It's a reframing out of thought. And we're very reluctant to do that. We're scared of that. And that is the fear of death, really. I mean, why do we think when we sit down there's so much chatter and noise going on all the time? Do you think this just is the way the mind is and we just have to adapt to it? Or do you think that perhaps we have engendered that noise to protect us from something? I believe that we are as noisy internally as we are to keep us from the stillness because stillness resonates so deeply with us as a death. It doesn't allow us to continue. Stillness is the absence of our continuance. And to keep stillness at bay, we have programmed it in so that the neurons now, I can be quiet inside, and get very upset with all the noise I'm making, never mind the fact that my upsetness is more noise, I think that I'm outside of the mind and can influence this thing by kind of pulling the levers right. And all this mind does is continue to speak. I have no control of it whatsoever. And so that when I'm asleep, I can dream myself right on through. Now, I picture Hamlet in his soliloquy, you know, to be or not to be. And he says, um, to sleep perchance to dream, oh, there's the rub, that there, even if I killed myself, there may be continuance. I wouldn't get out of anything. That is the way we sustain ourselves is with that rub. And it is a rub. He's seen the edge of his rub. He's, he would like to get out of the whole thing, but he doesn't know how because he even sees that killing himself physically isn't going to necessarily do it. We see the same, don't we? 
then it's we can have the intentionality to be still, but nothing happens. We sit down and it's all noisy in there. We have misunderstood what stillness is. Stillness isn't the absence of sound. It isn't the absence of noise. It isn't dependent. Noise is dependent upon circumstances, conditionality, relationships. But that which is still is not dependent upon what in any experience whatsoever. That which is still holds all experience. That which holds all experience is more primal than the experience itself. People say, what do you mean by that? I mean, if you have a glass and you pour milk into it, you couldn't pour milk into the glass unless the glass was more primary than the milk. It was there first. Right? So too, what holds all this sound is more authentically true than all the sound. All the sound is moving, the experiences are moving through this thing. But that which holds all things isn't in movement at all. It's just revealing what it is that's being experienced. That does not hold the continuance of me. That stillness, awareness, presence, does not allow for my continuance, for my story to maintain itself. And although we try in our meditations to bring that forth, we are also deathly afraid of it because it is a death. And we... are not finished living with the noise. We haven't come to the end of our need to hear our own echo. And so we keep shouting. We keep drama going. We keep a rub. We keep the rub available to us. And We do lots of things that are very sophisticated spiritually, except shut up. (laughs) I mean, when I talk to some of you about the techniques you're doing, it sounds like a road map into the most refined, most intricate. But what does it do? It's just more noise. Technique has a possibility, it has a potential, It has a value, but ultimately it is more noise, something more to do, more of a way for me to be involved within. And death is something other than that. Death is the ending of that. And so the sense of me gets very frightened by that and looks for and opts out of those strategies, but it wants to keep itself feeling noble enough, spiritually noble enough, so it looks for intricate patterns and ways and strategies to both maintain itself and have some proximity to stillness, but not actually surrender ourselves to it. We want to be 
around when we die. (laughs) It's interesting because we have a complete misunderstanding from my point of view. Maybe I'm wrong about... But most of us have a complete misunderstanding of what death is. We think it's lights out. Right? We think it's midnight in the graveyard. (laughs) But it's lights on. It's awareness beyond measure. In which we're not being constrained or contained within the concepts of life which are modules, moderations of life. So it holds life into into something specific and and modulated. Unmodulate life. You unfix it. And everything springs to life. When we fix something, it's dead. It's dead because we fixed it. We've made it something it isn't. We've made the verb of life a noun. And awakening is awakening out of that fixation. And it all comes into life. It doesn't come into life in the way that we know it, in a moderated way. It comes into full-blown life. 100% life. In which we are a part of, or an integral abiding of, that life. One life. Not six billion different forms, one life. So I'm hoping that when we have this bell go off from time to time, we will stop and we'll not just begrudge the fact that we were caught between actions, but we will look and see what value it gives us in that moment to spring forth out of the story of me. To come alive in that moment where the bell, the bell is like a pierce of a piercing of a balloon. That balloon bursts and we are available. We are open expressions now. And so let us use the form. In fact, when I, sometimes I feel so enriched by that stopping because I get caught in the same tranced as everyone else, I after I stop I can just because the sacred the sacred made manifest. Like any forms, it can start working against you if it becomes too routine. Uh, But hopefully here we have some possibilities. Some possibilities for ourselves. So to understand that death and silence are really simul, uh, are really synonymous with one another. And the thing about silence, and I just want to move into this a little bit, perhaps we'll be more indulgent in this subject later, is that silence doesn't hold thought. Or it doesn't, it holds thought, but it doesn't hold thought as being the way it's seen. It sees thought, but it's not being directed by thought. 
So thought comes through, but the words of thought are not directing the perception towards the towards what the words mean. And that's very important. So that it doesn't hold, let us just say it's very still, it's very quiet. And therefore, when it doesn't get represented by thought, it has no time. You see? Because time is created from thinking about the past, thinking about the future, and being caught in that trance and that continuance of the sense of me and the story of me and my past chapters and my future reference chapters. But when we're still with something, there is no time. Let me show you something, and I think this is an important part of this. Time is in us. When time is in us, there is no death. When we are in time, then we are subject to decay and death. In other words, when we live as if that continuance is the fact of our life and the fact of who we are, then the laws of death and change, I might add, and old age and sickness, influence us. I know where I've been. I know how old I am. I know where I'm going. I have my whole reference is to my body, to my state of mind, to my energy level. Everything is tempered and thought about in terms of how it's moving through this life. And that whole thing is subject we bring into, we bring into existence the laws of death by holding ourselves within that representation of time. We are in time never realizing that time is actually in us. Now, when time is in us, there is something that's much more substantial, much more primary, much more authentic than the thoughts of my past and the thoughts of my future that are occurring within this open space. This open space, therefore, is always here and now and is not subject to decay. Things that are subject to decay are things that are embedded within the thought of time, not things which hold the thoughts of time. That's very important because much of Buddhism has to do with looking at impermanence, thinking about change and impermanence. It's not that impermanence is a true representation of the facts of life, from the unconditioned perspective, what Buddhism is attempting to do is to have you get so disenchanted with life lived through time that you say, I can't do this anymore. Everything is moving. Everything is changing. There's no place to settle. There's no happiness. There's no comfort. There's no place to put my feet up on the coffee table because it's all moving into the next thing. We get disenchanted with time. We step out of time. Stepping out of time is this whole is the whole of the Dharma practice. It's what it's all about. And death is a shocker. You know, I could talk about impermanence. Everybody shakes their head. Impermanence. Yes, things are changing. But death. 
shocks the system. I want to shock your system. I want you out of this thing. You see? As I mentioned um, on a Tuesday night not too long ago, if we knew irreversibly that we were going to die in 15 seconds, and I, I announced that, I said, you know, whatever it is, it's going to happen, and every, all of you knew that I was saying the fact, what would we do together? You don't have time to call your loved ones. You don't have time to do anything or to go anywhere, to do all the things you wanted to do before you die. You only have time to be still. And this room would be so still you could hear a pin drop because all of us would have seen the irreversible position of being in time and having to be subject to death and dying. And we would be, that's it, I'm out of here. We would release the need to have, to dwell in time, which only awareness can hold. So this availability, the availability of stepping out of this dimension is as close to us as stillness is. Is as present to us as our own sense of presence. And it's literally only one thought away. That's why I am not one to ascribe to talking about practice in terms of endless lifetimes. I spent endless lifetimes, I am sure, doing just that. And it seems like within this lifetime I've spent endless lifetimes doing it. <laughs> and personally, I get, I'm just, I want to know. I'm not interested in, in getting close to the subject. I want to know what the subject is, period. Expose yourself. A genuine and sincere knocking at the door. What is this thing? Reveal yourself. And I think that it does. I know that it does. Not in time, but in presence. When we are locked and fixed within our continuance of me, then the present is an impoverished sense of presence. It's sort of squashed between the hard place of the past and the rock of the future. And it's something that we try to get to as we pass through in our consciousness, through all the remorses and difficulties we've had and the difficult year that many of us have had, and the future which holds the salvation away from this kind of sorrowful presence that we're in. So we're not really interested in the present. We're interested in where the present will evolve so that we can get into a better shape, better condition, have a better experience. And may I ask, how many of us have found that place? How many of us have found a residing place in the future which allows us to be completely content? It doesn't happen. It's got to happen now or it cannot happen. The now that I'm speaking about is the now, not that is composed of a present that's 
sort of squashed between some future and some past, but the now that holds all thinking and therefore all of time. This is not a philosophical discussion I'm having. This is realization. If you would like to realize it, it is possible for all of us to realize this. For me, one of the um, stimulants, stimulations that encouraged knocking at this door, realizing what this sense of time was, was the sense of death. There's no question. And what I had to go through uh, as I approached this subject was almost an intractable sense of self-preservation. I didn't want any part of this thing. I thought I did. I thought it would be great to be by the bedside and talk to the dying, me safe in my health, and talking to the people about their death and holding it in some kind of abstract way so that I can see what it's like for people to die being in health. You see, that's... I didn't have that concept, but that's how, that's how I actually approached it. Then I started to feel my own mortality as I was approaching the subject because it doesn't keep you high and dry, not death, not if you really let it in. I like this poem. I'm going to read this poem. The poem is called Earl by Lewis Jenkins. In Sitka, Alaska... Because they are fond of them, people have named the seals. Every seal is named Earl. Because they are killed one after another by orcas, the killer whale. Seal bodies tossed left and right into the air. At least he didn't get Earl, someone says. And sure enough, after time, that same friendly, bewhiskered face bobs to the surface. It's Earl again. Well, how else can you, how else are you to live except by denial, by some palpable fiction, some little song to sing while the inevitable, the black and white blindsiding fat comes hurtling towards you out of the deep? It's Earl again. It's me again. In deep sleep or in moments of deep stillness. There is no me. But we pop ourselves up soon after that. It's Earl again. (laughs) Here I am, ready to go. A different Earl by everyone's acclamation, but not to us. Not to us. You know, it's interesting. Between now in 2128, something catastrophic will happen to this population. 6.5 billion people will die because that's 120 years out. In 120 years, 2128, Everyone that is alive on this planet will have died. 
Since 50,000 BC, 100 billion people have died. 100 billion people have died. And we make it so personal, don't we? It's such a personal, it's such a personal, what is personal? It's both impersonal and personal. Because it happens to everyone, but it also happens to me. And we get so caught in the frozen, we're like deer in the headlights when the subject is raised. Yet it's that very subject that could allow us the possibility of seeing our way through this rub we call living. Malarepa says, in brief, without being mindful of death, whatever Dharma practice you take up will be superficial. Malarepa being the famous Tibetan yogi. All of our fear and all of our desire, it's very interesting how it's related to death and dying when you begin to see from the Dharma of death and dying. Fear is related to ending and loss. All fear is a fear of ending and loss. And all grasping is an attempt to protect ourselves against that loss. By protracting out, by continuing and having something increase whose lifespan is insufficient. What we do when we grasp, is that we try to prolong the experience, wanting it to continue, which is refusing to have things die. So all desire and all fear are oriented to the subject of death. A Belgian playwright said, a man named uh, Medelink, How could we possibly know the truth of death when we never have looked at it? If we looked at it, if we look at it at all, it is when we are mostly feeble and disoriented. Death is the most luminous and perfect pursuit, yet we grant it not one hour of our intelligence. And it's all around us. It's when the bell rings. It's the multiple road kills that we see as we drive. It's the changing nature and fabric of life as it's being lived with beginning and endings. And that is being lived that way because we have imposed the subject of death upon us. It is not an inherent quality of the unconditioned. And the reason we have done that is because we want to objectify our life. We want to have the experience of being alive. We want to have the experience of life. And so we do this thing with our mind like a prism distorts the beam of light and spreads it out in an array of different colors when it was all just white light. We, when life comes through our mind, We do this optical illusory dance that makes it seem as if life is external to us. And because we have to rearrange the facts in order to have that fact, we bring in death. Because now that I am 
experiencing life, I also have to experience the beginning and endings of that which I have created, as well as the beginning and endings of me because I am the creator. And so we have actually imposed death upon ourselves through the way we have arranged and desired our desired way to look at life, to set life up for ourselves. And religions come in and they develop a destination for death. Death for religion is a destination. It's like I'm going to go to hell or heaven when I die. It's like a destination. And if you can make the destination good enough, you won't have to be afraid of it. So it offsets the fear by creating more of the same, really. Another extension and place that I can go that's going to be a safe harbor once I get there, because it's made to be that, as if any experience could be a safe harbor against change. When change is the fact of having that kind of experience of a safe harbor. The spirit doesn't encourage a destination. Spirituality encourages a discovery of what death is, not a destination for death. We have to look at death, see what it is, see what it's, what its fiber is, what it's composed of. See if it holds the sense of fear and intimidation that it seems to hold when I am approaching it from the sense of separation. And what it demands of us is to either change focal points, focal settings, or to succumb to the terror. And it's about a 50-50 gamble. It's like 49.9-50.1 as to whether we're going to give ourselves over to the horror of the subject or whether we're going to actually take the horror and rearrange ourselves so that we see the truth of life and no longer affected by death. The Buddha was talking about the path a practice being a journey to the deathless. The deathless. Now, what is meditation in relationship to death? Because what are we doing here that's practically oriented and aligned with the subject? Well, I hope what we're doing here is that we're allowing that which changes to move as it moves. Because we're not going to change that which changes. We're not going to be in dispute. We can't hold ourselves in dispute to that which changes. Or we're just going to create a lot of turbulence and trouble. It's called suffering for ourselves. And hopefully we're beginning to see that when we sit down. That if we have any dispute with any experience whatsoever, which is the conditioned birthing and deathing of experience within us, we're going to have, we're going to compound the problem with that dispute. So what we do in meditation is to release all resistance to everything, every experience we might be having. We simply do not resist, argue with, or struggle with anything that's going on within us.
In essence, the only way we can do that is not to form another position to what's going on because that's further argument. Any position holds judgment. Any position holds judgment. It's a surrender positionality. That which holds experience, not that which positions itself relative to experience, is freedom. If we think we're in a position, there's an argument going on because the embodiment of self is argument. And so if we're that watcher watching the experience go by, also watch your objection to that experience go by. Or your objection to it going by. And you'll see that that watcher refuses to join the flow of things. We have to just surrender completely to what it is that's arising. Any positionality, any need to know, any desire to control the experience creates the sense of someone being outside of it. And that someone is subject to death. The experience itself is not subject when we abide within life not outside of it as an objective fact. Then everything lights up. We join life in this process. The moth goes into the flame. It doesn't buzz at a safe distance around it. And what happens on that investment and I have seen it in people who are dying, is that when there is a true abiding in life, no longer any resistance to what it is that's happening, including the fact that he or she was dying, amazing change of heart quality arises. An amazing change of heart. Sometimes you get these old curmudgeoned men or women who have been in confiscated within their character their entire life. Families are loath to come around them. And you see this, you walk in the room, you've all heard all the stories, and there is this absolutely delightful heart presence that welcomes you in. Not very often, because mostly people die in character. But occasionally... Occasionally. And you see the possibility. All it took, takes once. It only takes, to break the mold, show that it's possible, only need to see it once. Only need to see it once. How much proof do we need? If one person can do it, we can all do it. The Buddha proved it. We can all do it. I don't have to be a Buddha to do it. I can do it too. And we join it. Because when we see somebody of heart, not of mind, the impact on our body and mind is undeniable. You feel it. You feel it.
And such a person, not afraid of death, not afraid of that which changes. Why? Because the most that can happen is that it's a changing experience. It's another experience on a endless array of conveyor belt experiences in our life. This is another one. It's called death. But what is it that remains undiminished as we die? What is it that cannot be touched by the experience because it holds the experience? That's what I want to know. And my hope is that you do too. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.